chapter. We're in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Book of Hebrews chapter 11. This morning we're going to look at verses 13 through 16. I invite you to open there with me. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. Sometimes as we journey through our walk of faith, we wonder what the purpose is. This morning we want to look at that. What is the purpose of the journey? Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it would penetrate our hearts and lives this morning as we look at the journey of faith and the purpose behind it. Father, I pray where conviction is needed that we will feel that conviction, where grace is needed that we will feel that grace, that God, you will overcome whatever it is that we have set up, whatever barriers it is that are in our hearts and lives this morning, and that you will destroy those and break those down, and that our attitude and our thoughts and our intents of our heart will be to bring you glory, and that your word would penetrate our lives Lord, and we'd be a changed people, not because of good preaching or because of good music, but because your word has come into our lives and spoken to us, and you have brought about your will in us. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Halfway through the list of Old Testament heroes of faith, the author of Hebrews gives pause and an interpretation of the history of salvation. And if we're not careful, we could skip over these verses thinking they're not really all that important, but indeed they are very significant. And as we noted last week, the Apostle Paul illustrated um, his teaching on the doctrine of justification by faith alone by appealing to the example of Abraham's faith. We see this throughout Paul's writing. He pointed to the fact that Abraham is the father of faith to both the Jews and the Gentiles because Abraham is the father of all who believe. In fact, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. The point that Paul is making there in Romans chapter 4 is that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters as far as our standing with God is concerned. 
because Abraham was justified by faith alone before he was ever circumcised. What matters is that we walk in the footsteps of faith. These footsteps were played out for us by Abraham. So the idea is if we are saved and Abraham is our father of faith, we are to walk in his footsteps. That is why John Murray says to walk in the footsteps is to march in file. Abraham is conceived of as the leader of the band, and we walk not abreast but in file, following in the footsteps left by Abraham. This idea of walking in faith flies in the face of those that think that the Christian life is a one-time past event and you're done. Oftentimes we talk about getting saved and we will even ask people if they are saved. We'll say to someone, are you saved or have you surrendered your life to Jesus or however we want to put it as if the whole of the Christian life is a singularly focused on that one event. But we are called to walk in faith. And this shows that a life in Christ is not a one-time decision, but it's about a destination that is possibly far off. That is what we see in this passage of Scripture today. We see the purpose of our faith journey. Now, here's the thing. As we live out our faith journey on this earth, and as we said last week, we must understand that this is not your home. We need to refuse to settle in and get comfortable on earth. In fact, we should feel out of place, or as verse 13 puts it, as strangers and exiles on earth. We can't view heaven as some cute little place where we sit on a cloud playing a harp, and it's just added into what we already um, believe or our great life and experience on earth, but rather heaven is to be longed for. We are to desire a better country, it says. That is a heavenly one. We must understand that our life on this earth is a journey, and you and I, if we are believers, are exiles here and should have a desire for a better country, which is heaven. Now, this is difficult because we all want the American dream. That's what we're told. Get the American dream. We want the good life here and now. And so many who profess to be Christians live their lives with their life wrapped up with the things of this earth rather than settling their mind on the things that are above. And so we are motivated to get all we can to gain all of our treasures on earth while neglecting storing up treasures in heaven. But hey, at least we gained all kinds of stuff on earth. Our focus becomes what can Christ give me or what can I gain from Christ, what does He do for me now? And heaven's just an added bonus of being a believer. But in no way shapes or governs our daily life, even though it should shape and govern what we do every day. Now, as we've repeatedly said, the book of Hebrews is written to those who are under the threat of persecution, and they're tempted to return to their Jewish religion. And the author is pointing out to go back to Judaism is like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob returning back to their homeland where they came from while abandoning the promised land. However, they looked beyond the land to a heavenly country that God had prepared and they understood the purpose of the journey. They all died in faith, it says. Faith was the main characteristic of their life. 
right up until the day they died. Not one of them realized the promised land or the promise of innumerable descendants. They saw themselves as strangers and exiles, it says. If they doubted God's promise, they could have returned to their homeland, but they did not. Instead, they desire a better country, a heavenly one, and so they all died in faith with an unseen, unfulfilled promise. They didn't, they didn't see it or experience the fullness of the promise on earth. They provided for us an example of the purpose of the journey. We see how to live and die according to faith as exiles on this earth while we focus on and long for a better country in heaven. And so we have the first point purpose of the journey is to live and die in faith as strangers and exiles on this earth. That sounds real exciting, doesn't it? The whole purpose of our faith journey is to live and die in faith as strangers and exiles on this earth. That's not your best life now. That's not like great things for you, but that's the purpose of the journey. These patriarchs died in faith, acknowledging that they're strangers and exiles on earth. That is exactly what verse 13 tells us. The point he's making is that the life of faith is the life of an exile, a sojourner, or even a refugee. Our real home is in heaven. This is what Abraham alluded to in Genesis chapter 23, verse 4, when he was seeking to buy a burial plot for his wife Sarah, and, and uh, he says to the son of Heth that he was a stranger and sojourner among them. Jacob referred to his life as a sojourner twice in front of Pharaoh. This is the purpose of the journey of faith. It's not to amass all the wealth that you can gain or get or, or to get all you want on earth. That's not the purpose of your faith journey. But the purpose is to live and die in faith as strangers and exiles on earth. The earth. So strangers and exiles have seen and greeted God's promises from afar, it says. They've seen and greeted God's promises from afar. Verse 13 makes it clear. They hadn't received the promises. They had seen them from afar. They were able to do this because of their understanding. Of, of their, their understanding was divinely enlightened. And though the promises were in the future, in the eyes of faith, we have long-distant vision. This is what faith does. It understands the promises beyond this earth. Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. How is that even possible? Jesus came well after Abraham, but he says, your father Abraham... Rejoice to see my day. He saw it and was glad. It's possible because of faith. Later in this chapter, we will see that Moses was looking to the reward and he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Again, how is that even possible? It's possible by faith. He could see and greet God's promises from afar. Now this reveals to us four things about God's promises. First, it reveals to us that God's promises must be seen. God's promises must be seen. Before you can believe in the promises of God, you must be able to see them. The verse does not say that they did not see the promises of God, but that they saw them from afar, it says. 
Now, here is the problem when it comes to seeing the promises of God. And that problem is this. Everyone is spiritually blind. We can't see the promises of God. So if we can't see them, how are we going to believe them? Well, the solution is that God must open our eyes to see the promises that He has for us. And His promises are clearly played out in Matthew 13, 11-15. We will never see the promises of God unless God opens our eyes to the promises. Paul makes it clear that the God of this world had blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. If we are ever to see the promises of God and understand spiritual truth, then God who said, let light shine out of darkness must shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The only way for us to ever see the promises of God is for God to shine the light in on us so that we can see the promises of God. Now, here's the thing. Faith, which is a gift from God, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, enables us to have the conviction of things that are not seen, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, by bringing them into our present experience. In other words, it looks to the promises of God that is far off and it makes that a present day reality. This is exactly what Abraham did. Which is why I quoted the verse I quoted earlier. Where Jesus said that Abraham rejoiced to see his day and he sought and was glad. A personal relationship with God begins when God opens our eyes to see the promises of eternal life for whoever that believes in Jesus Christ. That's when it begins. He opens your eyes. Because we are spiritually blind. If you've never seen this, you've never seen the promise of eternal life whoever believes in Jesus Christ. Then I would call you to call out to God to open your eyes to the glory of Jesus Christ today. God's promises must be seen. They must be seen. And they can only be seen. If He opens our eyes, this includes the promise of His Son for eternal life. Not only must God's promises be seen, but God's promises must be greeted. They must be greeted. So first they saw them, and then it says that they greeted them. This is not some sort of cold and formal reception of them, but it is a warm and hearty welcome. The idea is that they brought God's promises in their lives, and they welcomed them into their lives. The promises of God were rested on as reliable. I wonder if God's promises are precious to you today. Perhaps you would say, well, of course they are. Then I would challenge you to test yourself. Does your heart cling to the promise of God? Can you say, like the psalmist did, that you delight in the decrees of God as much as you do in all of riches in Psalm 119.14. Do the promises of God influence your life in the midst of trials and grief? Do they supply you with comfort 
more than the things of this world, in the middle of your stress and sorrow, do you realize that your afflictions are light and they're only for a moment and they produce in you an eternal weight of glory? Do the promises of God affect your prayer life? Do you plead His promises before the throne of God? Do you call out to God pleading His promises back to Him? Do you say like David, remember your word to your servant that you have given me hope through it. So are God's promises precious to you, believer? Let me ask you, have you trusted in God's promises this morning? Have you welcomed Jesus Christ into your life as Savior and Lord? Have you embraced Christ like you would a long lost friend? That's what happens when God reveals to your to you your condition that you are a sinner before a holy God and that Jesus is a Savior who bore the penalty for your sin, you run to Him and you greet Him warmly into your life. God's promises must be seen. God's promises must be greeted. But we also see that we only see and greet God's promises from afar. We read that they saw and greeted the, the promises from afar. And it's the same for us today. Plus the verse says that all these died in faith. Not having received the things promised. But chapter 6 verse 15 says that Abraham obtained the promise. And verse 17 of this chapter says Abraham received the promise. So did he receive the promise or not? If he did not receive it, how does he see and greet the promise from afar? The author's making it clear that they didn't receive the total fulfillment of God's promise in this life while on this earth. They received a taste of the promise. Like Abraham and Sarah received their son Isaac, but Abraham died with only two heirs according to the promise. They were Isaac and Jacob, which was far from being an innumerable nation. You see, he had a taste of the promise. Isaac continued to live in a tent and did not get any land in a significant way. And Jacob died with 70 descendants, including his sons who became the patriarch of the 12 tribes. But they were forced out of the land and into Egypt because of famine. So there was a taste of the promises, but they only saw them from afar. It's the same for every single believer. God has promised us eternal life, yet every single one of us is going to die. We're promised eternal life, but we will die. The world looks at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, and says, what did it get you? You die in faith. Big whoop-de-doo. What a joke. You lived your life and you died without even making a mark on this world. The world says, the proper way for you to go is to accumulate all you can. And even though you can't take it with you, at least you died happy because you got all you could on this earth. However, the truth is, the garbage of this earth does not even compare to the joys of heaven. While we're on this earth, we will experience suffering and pain. But when we are in heaven, there will be no more pain. There will be no suffering. I'm not sure why sometimes we're afraid to, to ask about heaven. Either it is real or it's not real. And we're afraid to even sometimes talk about heaven as if, as if it's like some sort of taboo thing. Like, oh, I believe in heaven. That might scare someone off. Our 
Christian faith, if we don't believe in heaven, is false. If you don't believe that there's nothing more to this world than your Christian faith is false, and just stop believing. Go do something else. We go through suffering, and we go through pain, and there would be no real hope of a future of heaven if we didn't believe in it. However, as believers, we know heaven is real. We don't need a book to tell us heaven is real. We have the Bible. It tells us heaven is real. We know it's a promise from God. And though, uh, and though we will live forever, we must die on this earth in order to live for eternity. We only see God's promise from afar in one day. You and I, if you are a believer, we will experience it up close and personal. So we must see and greet God's promise even though we do it from afar. And the last thing concerning this is this. Receiving God's promise, promises, it alienates us from the rest of the world. The whole reason that Abraham left his home and went to Canaan was Because he had received the promise of God. If he ignored them, then he would have lived his life in his native land and he would have been like everyone else. However, he believed God's promises and obeyed God and went and lived in a foreign land dwelling in tents. Receiving the promises of God brought disruption to Abraham's life on earth. Instead of being like everyone else, now Abraham is different. Can you imagine being Abraham and having people stare at you? It wasn't like Abraham was was just like everybody else. Can you imagine as he's traveling with with his people and, and they pack up shop and they go somewhere and people stare at you and they wonder who you are? As you live the life of a nomad? Can you imagine people looking at you and saying, well, why do they look so different? Why are they here? You ever thought that? Why is that person here? What do they want? You better be careful around them. They're not like us. They might be dangerous. Never, we probably never experienced that. We don't know what that's like. You watch out for him. Watch out for that Abraham. They, they're not like us. Have you ever felt like you were an outsider? Not like everyone else? I've felt that way at times. Like when I first got off the airplane in Haiti, I can't speak the language. I clearly don't look Haitian. If you look at me, I don't I don't look Haitian. I know that's hard to believe. And people were trying to take my bags. They were just like talking to me and trying to take my bags from me. I'm like, are they trying to steal my bags? What's going on here? And when I traveled into the mountains by myself and a few other guys were with me, We were the only Americans up there. 
We stood out. I couldn't even communicate with anybody unless I had my translator there with me. And we were out in the middle of nowhere. And when I went to share the gospel with the voodoo priest, I for sure felt out of place, especially when I stepped into the voodoo temple and one of the guys blocked the door. I felt a little out of place. I was a stranger. I wasn't comfortable. And I think that's how we're supposed to feel about being a Christian living in a world filled with evil. We shouldn't just fit in. The rest of the world. Our goals should be different. Our pleasures should be different. The jokes that the world laughs at should seem repulsive. The garbage entertainment that the world finds acceptable, we should find repugnant. The world lives for this life and this life only. But we are to live in light of eternity. The world lives as if God does not exist. But we are to live constantly seeking to please God who knows our every thought and motive. The world should look at us as strangers, not not get us because because we think like them and we act like them and, and all this. They shouldn't understand us. We should live differently than they do. They should look at us as if we are refugees because we are so different than the rest of the world. When someone truly becomes a believer, they begin to view everything different from when they did before. We are transformed. Why? Because of God's grace. We have received and welcomed His promise of eternal life in Jesus Christ. We are strangers on this earth because the world is not our home. And you and I as believers are to live for a higher calling, not a calling that's of this earth, which leads me to my next point. As strangers and exiles, we can tell others about our homeland. I find it mind-boggling how as Christians we can quickly proclaim our love for country or our love for our flag or how fast we are willing to proclaim our patriotism, yet we neglect the fact that this is not our home. I love my country, but we are not saved to proclaim to other people how patriotic we are. We are saved to proclaim to other people Jesus Christ is the Savior for those who are sinners. That's why we're safe. I've witnessed Christians post things on social media and even say to other people of other nationalities, why don't you just go back home to your own country and yet we deny that this is not our home. Christian, this is not your home. And if you think this is, you are sadly mistaken. It's not. It's your temporary dwelling place and you should be doing all you can to win as many people to Jesus as you possibly can. Verse 13 makes it clear. These patriarchs acknowledge that they're strangers and exiles on earth. Then verse 14 says, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. We are not to be like those, as the Apostle Paul states, whose end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and yet from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3, 19 and 20. 
Listen, we come from a different country. We talk differently. We act differently than the natives of this world. And they are to look at our lives and notice that there is something that is profoundly different about us. We had better be ready to tell them why we are so different. We better be prepared to tell them about our homeland. We better be ready to say, this isn't my home. When they say, why are you so different? Because this isn't my home. Why don't you treat me like everyone else? Because this isn't my home. Why don't you act like other Americans? Because America is not my home. My home is in heaven. And we should ask them to join with us as exiles on earth. Because our focus, Christian. Must be heaven, not earth. Strangers and exiles cannot return to their homeland. Strangers and exiles cannot return to their own homeland. Remember who he's writing to? People who are facing the threat of persecution who are tempted to return to their Old religion, so the author points out that the patriarchs could have returned to their homeland if they had been looking for an early or an earthly inheritance. They had far better living conditions in their former land. They could have returned and would have been welcomed by their family and friends instead of always keeping their distance in Canaan. But they did not return. They endured the hardships because they were seeking a better country. They were seeking heaven. The point is clear. That as Christians, we are to desire something better. We make a break from the old way of life. From this world. To seek after heaven. That should be our goal. That we set before us, laying aside everything that would hinder us. And using every means necessary to seek after heaven. The, the, the world must be held back and our affections must be set on the things above. We live in this world, but we must refuse to be of the world. The church may seem old-fashioned and out of touch, and though our faith may be tested, and we will be tempted to go back to the ways of this world, we cannot return. Because to do so would be to turn from the promises of God and to turn from Christ, and I'm not talking about just sin here. I'm talking about a complete turn from Christ. We cannot go back to our old way of living. Why not? He answers it in verse 16, which leads to point number two. There's only two points in this sermon, but a lot of subpoints. Living a life of faith, we desire something better. Heaven prepared for us. By God. Living a life of faith, we desire something heaven, something better heaven prepared for us by God. There's so much packed into verse 16. I do not have time to go into all of the detail, but there are four things from this verse that we want to quickly look at. First, a better country, a prepared city, a desire, and our God who is not ashamed. So let's break this down. First, a better country, heaven. A better country, heaven. Listen, this verse is not talking about physically going from one country to another country. It's about heaven. Now, even though we have a lot of Southern Gospel songs that like to talk about heaven, the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about it. What, what we do know about heaven is that it is better than anything that we can imagine on this earth. Here, it is 
comparing it to Ur where Abraham left, but you can think of the best place you can think of on earth. Think of the absolute best place you've ever been on this earth. And it won't even compare to heaven. It won't compare. My wife wants to go like Scotland, I think, or something like that. We'll probably never get there because that's like an expensive trip. But it won't compare to heaven. Maybe I'll just tell her that. Oh, it doesn't compare to heaven. Don't need to go. Think about it. Every problem that you've ever faced on this earth came as a result of the fall of the human race into sin. That won't be in heaven. There's no curse in heaven. There's no death in heaven. There's no sorrow in heaven. And there's no pain. We don't need doctors in heaven. We don't need police in heaven. We don't need a military in heaven. And we don't need armed guards in heaven. So many things we're used to having on earth, we will not even need in heaven. We also know that heaven will be beautiful beyond our imagination. There will be streets of gold and walls and gates made from precious stones and a river that is clear with water of, of life flowing through it. These are earthly pictures to give us some idea of how magnificently beautiful heaven will be. However, the best part of heaven the very best part of heaven is not how beautiful heaven is. That's not the best part of heaven. The best part of heaven is God. That's the best part. The psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? Who do I have in heaven but you? And that's the best part about heaven. Revelation declares, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold the dwelling place of God with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. That's the best part about heaven. God is there and we are in His presence. Wow! There's no need for sun or moon because the glory of God will radiate heaven for all time. We can't even fathom that. So we see a better country, heaven. Next we see a prepared city. The end of verse 16 says, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, a better country and the prepared city are the same thing. They're just viewed from two different perspectives. The city was given some description in verse 10. It has a foundation whose architect and builder is God. Now, it's interesting that for heaven, we have a description of it being a city. Have you ever tried to envision heaven? What do you think of? I, this is why I think many people think of because this is why I used to think all the time. It's kind of out in the country. You have privacy and it's peaceful and you have no neighbors. <laughs> right? That's what I like because, you know, that's just what I, that's what I used to envision. However, the Bible gives it a description of a city. How do you envision a city? Now, I got lost in downtown Philly once, and I saw trash and dead grass and broken bottles and graffiti and things run down and bars on windows, and even the police car I saw was beat up. 
also got lost in Baltimore, Maryland, where the cop pulled me over and he told me to get out of there and escorted me out of the town, out of the city, out of the, where I was at. In heaven, there is no graffiti, there's no trash, there's no, there's no street talk, there's no domestic violence, there's no killing or stealing, there's no vandalism, there is no sin. The city of God is perfect because God is there and He is perfect. There will be no strangers there, there will never be pressed for time there in heaven. We're not like, oh, I gotta, I got somewhere I have to be, I gotta, I gotta go somewhere. And you, can you imagine never meeting a stranger? You will know everyone. God has prepared it for us. God will walk the streets and talk and manifest Himself there with us. Everything that is good and beautiful and peaceful will be there because God is there. There will be perfect peace. There will be perfect justice. Every pain that has been suffered in our obedience to Jesus Christ will have vanished away a thousand times over again. And heaven will never, ever, ever deteriorate or fall apart. It will shine Brighter and brighter and brighter for all eternity. We have a country, a prepared city, and then we have a desire. Look at verse 14. Again, it says that they are seeking a homeland. Then look at verse 16. They desire a better country. When you desire and seek heaven, you don't settle for the things of this earth. That's so hard for us to get. When you desire heaven, you hold on loosely to the things of this earth. Do you remember when you fell in love? Those of you fall in love? Suddenly, you desire someone else's company. Suddenly, you had, right, you had no time before, but suddenly you have all kinds of time to meet with this other person. I mean, I remember this kind of stuff in college. Like, I'd, I'd have buddies in college and suddenly I wouldn't see them anymore. Suddenly they're gone. And they're spending every spare moment with this, with this girl. And I'm, what? I thought we were buddies. You know, what's going on here? That's what happens when you fall in love. Suddenly your wallet's also empty. You guys know what I mean? You seek the one you love because you have a strong desire to be with them. We're to seek heaven because we desire to be with Jesus who is the lover of our souls. The life of faith has a desire to seek heaven. Faith looks at the things of this world and everything that this world has to offer. And then it looks at the promises of God and what it offers. And faith desires God's promises over the things of this world. Faith desires heaven. Faith seeks heaven. Faith realizes the promises of heaven and lives as a sojourner on this earth because faith loves Jesus and is kingdom focused. Church, dwell on this for a moment with me. We far too often water down saving faith as this one-time decision that involves no change of desire and no change in what we seek after. And that is not saving faith. The whole point of this text is that when we live and die by faith, our desire is changed. We now seek to be satisfied in a whole new way. Don't you get it? They're seeking a country other than this world could offer. And they desire a city greater than a mere 
earthly existence. And so they were so gripped by God, they would not be satisfied until they arrived in heaven. Nothing could satisfy them. Do you desire the promises of God over and above what this world has to offer? Are you seeking the things of God? What is your excuse if you're not? If you're not seeking the things above where Christ is, what's your excuse? If you give any excuse, then you need to examine your heart. Because there's a strong possibility you've left your first love for the Savior who gave Himself for you. So we've seen a better country, which is heaven. We've seen a prepared city, which is also heaven. We've seen a desire for heaven. And finally, let's see this. Our God is not ashamed of us. What powerful words we have. Therefore, God is not ashamed. Those words are tucked away right in the middle of verse 16. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. It's kind of mind-boggling to think of God being ashamed. It's a figure of speech here using the negative to mean the positive. As far as I know, there's nothing quite like this anywhere else in the Bible. The point being driven home is that God is pleased to be called their God. In the Old Testament, when God appeared before Moses in the burning bush, He declared, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Though these men were not perfect, God was not ashamed to be called their God. In fact, most often, God is called the God of Jacob. Now think of that statement. The author says, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For, for, for the word, therefore, refers, ref, that, that word for refers us back to something previous, which is they desired a better country. And the word for points us to what follows, which is he has prepared for them a city. So God is not ashamed because they desire a better country, which is heaven. Therefore, God is not ashamed of them. So what must we do for God to not be ashamed of us? What do we have to do? The answer is simple. Desire Him. I must desire the city that He has made for me. I must desire long for heaven over and above earth. I must desire God over everything else. And this is faith. Desire God more than anything else in this world. Now stop and think with me for just a moment. What is the opposite of being ashamed? So if, if I say I'm not ashamed of someone, what am I saying? I would say that I am proud of them, right? That's what I'd say. So the opposite of being ashamed is, is being pleased or proud to be our God. Now, why would desiring God in His city above all else make God proud? Because it brings God honor. And when you desire something, you call attention to what you desire. When you desire someone, you call attention to them. Now, just to have a desire is no big deal. We don't, we don't brag about a desire that we have. Nobody does that. I don't go around saying, Oh boy, you should really see my desire for a Costco hot dog. Uh, I mean, it's the biggest desire you ever saw. That doesn't even make any sense to brag about my desire for something. 
In the same way, we don't go around saying, oh, you should see my desire for God. Oh, I desire God like nobody's business. The point is, desiring God does not bring attention to us in our desire. Desiring God brings attention to God. It is His city. To desire God is to bring attention to God. Listen to 1 John 3, 1-3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And then He applies it, verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies Himself as He is pure. Our God is not ashamed of us when we desire Him above all else. When we honor God, He is pleased with us. How powerful. God is pleased with me and I desire Him. So what's the application of this message? Remember the title, The Purpose of the Journey? For some of us, week after week, we sit through a message or we read our Bible or whatever it might be, and we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit towards obedience in our life. The purpose of the journey is to live and die in faith as strangers and exiles of this earth. That's the purpose. And it requires obedience. We are confronted with the Word of God by the Spirit of God and He calls us to do something. And we trick ourselves and we say, there is no way that God could be calling me to do that. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's to stay at your job or leave your job. Maybe it's getting baptized. Maybe it's to speak up about Christ at your workplace. Maybe it's just to speak up about Christ in general. Maybe it's to confront someone in sin. Maybe it's to start a new career. Maybe it is to become a missionary. Maybe it's to surrender to full-time ministry. I really don't know what it might be. But when you look at obedience from your limited mind, when you feel the pressure of God asking you to do something and you look at your obedience from your limited mind, you are afraid. I, I can't go witness to my neighbor. I can't share the God. I can't live that Christian life and have everybody looking at me funny. I can't live as a stranger in exile on this earth. I can't do that. I can't, 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 can't. Because you're limited in your mind. Because you're looking at that from your perspective and you're afraid and you think there's no way that I can do this. You have considered every possible way you have to try to figure it all out in your head. And there is no way it's going to turn out well when you try to figure it out in your head. What do you think Abraham thought? What if Abraham sat down and tried to figure out every possible angle? This message is for you today. If you've heard God's conviction and you try to figure it out. This message is for you today. Do you desire God above everything else in your life?
Do you truly believe that God can and will honor your faith and your obedience towards Him, that He will not be ashamed to call Himself your God, and that He will use His wisdom as you are on your journey of faith to turn your journey of faith into obedience, into one of faith? Oh, that we would all live and die in faith as strangers and exiles on this earth. Oh, that every Christian would look at their life and say, I want to live and die in faith as a stranger in exile on this earth. I don't care what the world thinks. I want to be an exile on this earth. I want to be somebody to live so for Jesus that this world cannot understand me. Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, The Christian Pilgrim, writes, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of Him is the only happiness in which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven Fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations on this earth. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Therefore, it becomes to us to spend this life only as a journey towards heaven, as it becomes to us to make the seeking of our highest end and proper good the whole work of our lives to which we should subordinate all other concerns of this life. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and our true happiness. The point, don't labor or set your heart on anything, Christian, other than heaven. Ask God right now to open your eyes to the beauty of heaven. Ask Him to fill your vision with the beauty of Christ. That we would say, like the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 73, 25 and 26. Oh, God would look at us and say, I'm not ashamed to be there, God. I'm proud of them. Oh, that God would look at me and say, I'm not ashamed to be Josh Mondes, God. I'm proud of Him. Do you desire God and trust in Him? Because He is worthy and able. Let's close prayer.